Well, it might be Thanksgiving this week, but this is not a Thanksgiving sermon. Um, in fact, this sermon probably needs a content warning. Um, this is one of the darkest, if not the darkest, and most difficult passage in all of the Bible. Um, it's easily probably in the top five passages that are hardest to preach. It's been called by some a text of terror, or others called it unpreachable. Of all the church fathers, only three dared to even mention it in their writings. Even the great St. Augustine, who wrote about five million words more than anyone else, didn't go anywhere near it. In my life, I've only heard one pastor ever take a swing at it. And I want to take a Can anyone raise their hand if they've ever heard a sermon on this passage in Judges 19? Okay, we got one, one back there. That's good. See, that tells you how little this passage is looked at. And we read in a moment, it's easy to see why. In this passage, we're going to find abuse, sexual assault, murder, and a woman being cut up into little pieces. If we accurately filmed this chapter, it would then be sinful for all, any of us to watch it. And yet, here it is in God's Word. Why? What does this have to teach us? Everything in the Bible is here to teach us something. And all of it is here eventually to point us towards Jesus. And so how can we find Jesus even in a passage like this? So what I want to do this morning is take my best shot and try to show you what this passage means and what it has for us even still today. And now because this text is so difficult, I'm actually going to do something a little different. I'm going to give you the big idea of this passage up front um, before we even read it. So if you want to go over and flip to that slide for me, Tommy, the, the big idea in this passage is that how we treat the weak and defenseless reveals our spiritual condition. How we treat the weak and defenseless, it reveals our spiritual condition. So I want you to have that in mind then as we go through and we read, as is our habit, um, this entire passage um, in full. It's in Judges 19, if you haven't already flipped there. And I invite you to stand with me, um, if you're able, just as we read through God's Word. It says, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. And her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, and he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And her father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. On the fourth day, they arose early in the morning as he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you can go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. When the man who's concubine and his servant rose up to depart, the father-in-law said, the girl's father said to him, Behold, the day is now waned towards evening. Please spend the night. And behold, the day comes to its close. Lodge here, let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you can arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him 
a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was near him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was getting over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. His master said to him, We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who don't belong to the people of God in Israel, but we'll pass on to Gibeah. And when he said this to the young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places. We'll spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And they passed on and they went on their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. As they turned there to go aside and spend the night at Gibeah, and he went in and sat down to the open square of the city. For no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. And the man was from the hill country at Ephraim, and he was sojourning at Gibeah. And the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler of the open square of the city. And the man said, Where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, We're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from where I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, bread and wine for me and our female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I, I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and gave him the donkey's feed. And they washed their feet and they ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man and the master of the house went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man's come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here, my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her. And abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the master's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning and he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. But behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up, and he went away to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and he sent her throughout the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from that day, that the people of Israel came out from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The grass withers and the flower fades, but... God's word stands forever. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would illuminate your word this morning. Lord, it is true that we can't understand your word unless you help us. And there are sometimes we don't quite believe that. But when we come to passages like this, suddenly we remember how much we do need you. I ask that you would be here this morning. Give me words. Give us ears to hear and hearts to hear what it is that you have to teach us this morning. And I pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So again, our big idea of this passage, kind of what I think the main point or thrust of all of this is, is that how we treat the weak and defenseless really does reveal our spiritual condition. 
But so how does the world tr do that then? How does the worldly people, how do, how do people who do not know God, do not know Jesus, treat the weak and defenseless? Your, your first, second point there on your bulletin, if you take notes, is that the world abuses them. The world abuses them. The world abuses the weak and defenseless. And their mistreatment of these people reveals how far from God that they really are. And we see this all throughout this passage. Let me start with a summary of this whole story so we can kind of unpack the elements in it, just in case you got confused or just horrified by some of the details. In this story, we see another unnamed Levite and his unnamed concubine. And she leaves him for some reason, goes back to her dad, and after four months, he decides to go and get her. And when he gets there, he just hangs out and parties with her father for four days. They're just having a great time. They finally leave and they stop by an Israelite city instead of a foreign city because they think, well, that's safer and a better place to be, so we'll go there. No one offers them a place to stay at all in contrast to the great party they were having with his father-in-law, except for one old man who doesn't really live there. He's just there temporarily. And while they're there, all the men, a large amount of men come, bang on the door, demanding to be able to rape the Levite man. And instead, the concubine gets thrown out to the wolves. And so she's beaten, abused, and she lays unresponsive at the door in the morning. He takes her home, he cuts her up into pieces, and he mails her throughout the country. And that's how the passage ends. That's pretty much the story. This is a dark story. And it reveals the depths of the wickedness of the world and of Israel at this point. All throughout this book, right, as we've been going through Judges, if you've been with us, we've been reading violent and dark stories about the great sinfulness of Israel and how they really are just getting worse and worse and worse. And here it comes, and this is about the bottom of the barrel as bad as you can get. And part of the reason that this story is so dark and is here is to show how far from God that Israel has come. This is not Israel as it was in Moses' day or Joshua's day. Even then they had plenty of sin and there was plenty of judgment and plenty of rebellion against God. But this is a whole nother level. And the unnamed woman in this story, she really is, is a stand-in for the weak and defenseless. Throughout this passage, we never hear her name. We never hear her voice. She doesn't speak. She doesn't get many actions. She just gets used and abused. She's not even really a wife to this Levite. She's just a, a concubine. Just kind of old school. Well, why isn't she a wife? It, it seems fairly clearly from the Levite and the way he's traveling, he doesn't appear to have one. So it's not because he's already got a wife. And that's not as if that would stop Israel at this point because we've already seen how sinful they are and we see how he kind of is throughout the rest of the passage is really because he's just interested in using her. That's how this priest views this unnamed woman. All we really get about her is that one phrase of she was unfaithful to him. Or your passage might say she became angry with him. Both are cl close. The Hebrew really is vague here. All that it tells us is she played the harlot and then it doesn't really expand on what does that mean. I don't think that it means that she was cheating on him or sleeping around. It, and her leaving is actually probably what is being seen as unfaithful. Because how dare you? you? Women don't get to do that in this culture. Women don't get to divorce their husbands, but husbands can divorce their wives. So even just leaving is an act of unfaithfulness. And this passage is so negative towards the, the Levite, I really can't imagine her being the one that's in the wrong. 
One commentator even pointed out some of this stuff in the Hebrew here makes it seem like it's possible the Levite was actually pimping out this woman and that she was just a prostitute. I don't know if quite that's true, but I think that's more likely than the fact that she was in sin here and he was going to get her back because he was such a good guy. So four months pass in verse 2, and then he decides to go get her. Tells you a little bit about how he values her, which is not that much. And he gets a strange greeting. The girl's father saw him, and he came out with joy to meet him. What kind of father is this? doesn't say that she came out happy to meet him. We don't really get to see what she thinks or feels at all. Father doesn't seem to mind that it's been four months. And then he, he makes him stay and they remain there three days and they eat and they drink. And all throughout the while, they are partying. The Levite and the father. The woman's not with them. She's off somewhere else. And for the next several verses, it really kind of unfolds as he keeps trying to leave and the, the father keeps trying to persuade him to stay longer. And that's weird for us, but there's a couple things that are going on here at different levels. On one level, it is showing us in contrast to what we see later in the passage with some really horrible hospitality. We see, hey, this, this father's a pretty good host. He is continually invite giving food abundantly and he wants them to stay longer you know sometimes you have in-laws that come and you kind of want them to leave it's nice to see him but you know you don't want them to stay longer well no he wants them to hang out even more and this is contrasted that but we also just see he's ignoring his daughter we don't see she doesn't get to speak we don't see how she feels don't see if she wants to go back she's just not really in the picture at all and she doesn't get invited to all of these festivities the picture here isn't one of a loving awesome father it's just of another person who does not care and ignores this unnamed woman so they finally leave and they don't get all the way home and they're delayed because of all of this party and he doesn't want to even stay the night now so they leave knowing they're not going to make good time and not going to get all the way back home that day. In verse 11, they're near Jebus. Days nearly over and a servant says to his master, come now, let's turn aside to the city of the Jebusites because it's close, it's right here, let's spend the night. And his master says, no, we won't turn into the city of foreigners who don't belong to the people of Israel but we'll pass on. Servant's basically just saying, hey, there's a hotel here. This is a good place. This is nice. Why don't we just stop now instead of going on more? And the Levite's not sure. He says, well, this is a Canaanite city. I don't know how we're going to be received here. You know, maybe no one's going to take him in. It's, it's better to stay in an Israelite city because their people are really hospitable and good. and They're definitely going to be more righteous than those sinners over there. And the irony of this is the Israelite city should be more welcoming of travelers. That... God has plenty of instructions and laws in his word about how they're to treat travelers and foreigners and anyone who happens to come in and spend the night in their city square. I've missed the train the last couple weeks. <laughs> but so he goes in, 15, he goes in, sits down in the open city of the square. No one takes them in to spend the night. So they're sitting out in the open and no one offers them anything. This is very obvious where there are, okay? It's not like they're off in a corner and no one can see them. Kind of the whole city is set up around the square and there's just one person there in this village. Everyone knows. I've never seen that person before. Everyone says, oh, they clearly need a place to say. Well, I'm not going to give them anything. It's not like they're invisible. It's giving us a picture of the entire town ignoring them and turning their eyes. This should be the first clue to us that something is wrong here. 
that there's some sinfulness going on in this town. And so an unnamed old man comes back from work late. He's just a sojourner. Again, he's not from the tribe of Benjamin. He just happens to be in this place at this time, and he's living there temporarily. So he offers them a place to stay. But look at what he says. When he says, peace be to you, shalom be to you, I'll care for all your wants, only don't spend the night in the square. It's not just a warning. The you here that he's saying, it is only in the singular. He's not saying peace be to y'all. It's peace be to just, just you, Mr. Levite. He doesn't offer shalom or peace or safety to the woman. And he warns that something bad is going to happen if they stay out there. It's hard to see that it's only singular in the English as much, but it's there in the Hebrew if you want to go and check it. And later at night, the story begins to take its dark turn. The worthless fellows, which is an understatement if I've ever heard one, comes out and declare, bring out the man who came into your house, that we can know him. Which that know him is the way the Bible uses a lot of sexual language, especially in the book of Genesis. You'll see that phrase used repeatedly. But then the old man, the master of the house, he went out. So he goes out to try and negotiate and says, No, no, my brothers, don't act so wickedly. Since this man's coming to my house, don't do this vile thing. That's a good start. Okay? He's protesting the wickedness, saying, No, don't rape this man. But then what he says next, he gets away from it quickly. Well, behold, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, don't do this outrageous thing. What a horrible, sad moral calculus this person has. They go, well, man, homosexual rape, that's really terrible. That's awful. That's obscene. Please don't do that. But you know, regular rape... Awesome, go for it, that's fine. But just don't do that, that one's really bad. The homosexual rape, awful, but here, rape my own daughter. Totally chill, don't worry about it. This reveals the sinfulness of this place. They can, they can act and they can put on airs and say, well, here, we're not really sinning, doing the really bad stuff, but we're still pretty good. And it's the callousness that he just shows these women. They're more than happy to hand them over. But it gets even worse. Okay, 25, the men won't listen to him. They're not persuaded. But the man seizes his concubine and makes her go out to them. And she doesn't want to go. Who would? He doesn't want to go out there. No one wants to. He quite literally, he grabs her and he throws her out of the door. I can barely... Picture that scene and how that probably unfolded. There's the moments, there's the loudness, and they're, they're pounding and they're arguing, and he's starting to freak out and wonder what to happen. And he kind of turns and looks at her, and I can only imagine the look of horror in her face when she realizes what he's about to do. As he's walking towards her, trying to grab her, he probably tried to run away, but there's nowhere to escape because you can't get outside of the house because that's where the danger is, but now the danger is inside the house as well. I don't doubt that she screamed and cried and probably tried to fight as he dragged her out and then forced her outside and shut the door behind. Tells us that they knew her and they abused her all night until the morning. And as soon as the dawn began to break, then they let her go. What evil that this is. 
But this is how the world treats people as commodities, as products, as things to be used and abused for our own pleasure. And who cares how it affects other people? Who cares if it's against God's law? Who cares about anything other than just me? And even how the Levite and this old man treat people, it's just they're, they're things to be used so that bad stuff doesn't happen to me. I don't care if bad stuff happens to other people as long as it's not me, that's fine. I'm happy to throw you outside. 26, in the morning appears, the woman came and she fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. She didn't have strength to open the door, let alone even knock on it to be let back in. I'm sure she was naked at that point, covered in bruises, probably bleeding. And in the morning, what happens? 27, master rose up in the morning, opens up the doors of the house, and he went out to go on his way. Behold, there's his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. So those few words, you can picture her desperation. He appears to just wake up after a good night's rest. Wakes up, it's a normal day, ready to continue on with his travels. Doesn't seem like he was up all night worried about what was happening outside. He didn't wait till the noise quieted down and then go outside quickly to see if she's okay. While she's being raped and beaten all night, he's sleeping like a baby. And he wakes up not to check on her to see how she is, not because he feels sorrowful and can't believe what happened, but, you know, he just I had to do it, but I'm so sorry. No, he just wakes up because he's ready to leave. He packed his bag, got dressed, brushed his teeth, you know, whatever he was doing, and opens the door. And he says to her, get up. Let us be going. That's the callousness he has. Get up. He doesn't say, my God, are you okay? He doesn't say, are you alive? He doesn't say, I'm so sorry. He just says, get up. Time to go. We're going to be late. We've got to make good time. We've got things to do today. This is the evil of this man. It tells you everything you need to know about his spiritual condition. Well, what kind of person does it take to see a naked person laying, dying at your door, and that's how you respond? Hey, get up. Reminds me later of the parable of the Good Samaritan where the Levite steps, or they step over the dead dying person that reveals their condition as well. And it tells us, but there was no answer. So how does he respond? He just puts her on the donkey and he rose up and he went on his way to his house. He doesn't check on her, doesn't check for a pulse, doesn't do anything, just throws her on the donkey so he can get moving. And then he takes a knife, takes hold of his concubine, and he divides her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. That part's especially horrific. Um, let me intensify the horror for you a little bit. The Bible doesn't tell us when she dies. It's deliberately ambiguous as to when that happens. It doesn't say she died at the door. It just says that she doesn't answer. It's possible she died in the journey, traveling on a donkey that way can't have been good for your healing. It's possible she died not longer after, but as I think about it, and about half the scholars agree with me, everyone's pretty divided, there's a really good chance that she was still alive as she was on that table and when he took the knife. I think that's probably what happened as he chops her up. And, and the word there for dividing her, it's actually the same word that it uses to describe how the Levites cut up the sacrifices and divide those to be sacrificed to God. So it is even more 
twisted in that sense. He's using the, the skills and the ways that you would treat animals to God to do something evil. And his offense, he's really upset at what happened here. And it's not because, and it proves how little he cares about her because he's the one who threw her outside. This is his fault. He quite literally did this. But he's upset that his property is damaged. He didn't view this woman as a human being. This woman wasn't somebody that he loved or cared about. She was just something to be used. This passage shows us how far Israel's fallen. How Israel and how he defeats, treats the weak and the defenseless, it shows their sinfulness. Israel should be better than all of the nations around them. They're supposed to be. They're chosen by God, not because they were so awesome, but he was supposed to help them become righteous. They should live differently. They have the law of God. They know how they're supposed to act. And yet, they don't. They were supposed to show better hospitality than those other foreign cities, and yet here we have this horror. Really what you find in this passage, it probably sounds very familiar and should, to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's intentionally a retelling of it in some ways. It's very similar to Genesis 19 with Lot and two angels, but that was a foreign city. This is an Israelite city. What we see here is that this place is even worse than Sodom. There's no angels. There's no deliverers. I mean, the wickedness is even more obscene. What it shows us is that Israel has been completely canonized. Or they've become just like the world around them. There's no difference anymore. They might talk like they know God. They might have priests who call themselves Levites and go through the motions and still have all of their rituals. But the way that they act towards the weak and defenseless like this woman shows that they are all spiritually dead. They don't really know God. Some try to take um, this passage, less this passage, but more Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah and make it all about hospitality. Because, you know, the main offense isn't the, the homosexual rape, but, you know, it's being rude to your guests. Uh, that, that's really what the Bible is trying to say there. They're right in one only sense that hospitality is important, but it is just one of the many sins that is being committed here. And it's really hard, and I don't see how you can make that argument in this passage with a straight face to say this passage is all about hospitality and you, you really got to be kind to your in-laws when they come to visit. So that's why this is a Thanksgiving verse, you know, that's just what that is, right? I, I don't think you can do that. The hospitality is one of their many sins, but it is just the, the tip of the iceberg. The, the sin of them is how they treat the weak, how they abuse and rape and discard and chop up the weak and defenseless. This isn't about their hospitality, it's about their sinfulness. No, they are spiritually dead. So that's the world. It's the way the world treats the, the weak, but what about Jesus? You notice God isn't really even mentioned once in this verse, except when the guy's trying to find a place to, to be. Then he says, oh, I'm going to the house of the Lord. That's the only time we ever see it mentioned. Doesn't, you know, we don't, but we don't actually get his name. Uh, the whole but. Right? If this whole book is really about Jesus, Jesus told the two men on the road to Emmaus and he walked through all of the scriptures and showed them how all of it points to him. So that means that this passage too points to Jesus in some way. Well, I, I think the big idea is how does the world treat, the, the way we treat the weak and defenseless, it reveals our spiritual condition. The world abuses them. Well, how does Jesus treat the weak? How does Jesus treat the defenseless? How does Jesus treat the needy? Our, our point number two or the next one in your blank is that Jesus uplifts the weak. 
Jesus uplifts them. The, the woman is unnamed in the story, right? She never gets to speak. One of the few actions we see is her leaving and her crawling in desperation towards the door. But the reality is that God knows her name. Even if we don't. And Jesus knows who this woman was. And you can notice in 29, it's easy to miss because you can get distracted by how terrible everything else happening in 29 is. But when it says, and he sent her throughout all the territories of Israel, it doesn't say he sent her body parts. So even the, the scripture there is recognizing her humanity and her personhood even though no one else is. It's no wonder that Jesus continually sought out the weak and defenseless. We read that in the beginning in our call to worship, how God purposely chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Not many of you were, were rich or strong or had it all together. Jesus is especially known for having women who followed him, for women disciples. He, he met women alone in their homes when none of the Pharisees would have ever done things like that. And yet he met and had time to spend with Mary and Martha. He talked with a promiscuous woman at the well when everyone else would have seen her as too damaged and dangerous to be around. Women were some of his most devoted followers. While all of his disciples ran away like cowards, maybe except for John, it was women who stayed with him at the cross. It was the women who went to the tomb to care for his body. It was the women who first preached the resurrection and told the disciples, and the disciples didn't quite believe it and had to go see it for themselves. In contrast to the world's treatment of weak women, look how Jesus treated them. At his time when no one would have cared and no one would have had any, wanted really anything to do with women, Jesus loved them. And Jesus loved the, the unclean and the untouchable. This is part of the reason Jesus healed so much. Jesus didn't just go around healing because he wanted to reveal that he was powerful and he was God. It wasn't just utilitarian and he was using them to show off. Jesus healed them because he loved them and he valued them and he wanted to restore them and make them well again. The sick, especially the, the lepers, were often unclean, right? If you had so many diseases or certain diseases, you had to stay away from everybody else. You couldn't hang out at your home with your family. You couldn't even hang out in town. Some of you, you'd have to walk through town and yell, unclean, unclean, nobody come near me so that you don't get far away from God too and can't go to church. But Jesus didn't mind. And Jesus purposely sought out the unclean and he healed them. And he touched them. And he didn't mind even when the bleeding woman touched him. He wanted her. He found her. He pointed at her out. And even though she just wanted to be a secret and then she was healed, Jesus wanted her to know that he saw her, he loved her, she was valued. And that it was her faith that healed her. Jesus loved the poor. He didn't spend all of his time with celebrities and kings and the influential. Most of his disciples weren't that impressive. Especially not that impressive when you read how they acted. He spent most of his time with the poor and the weak. The angriest that we see Jesus is at the temple, and a large part of why he's so angry is because of how the religious people are abusing and oppressing and taking advantage of the poor. And they are using religion to do that. And Jesus loved children. He wanted the children to come to him. His disciples tried to keep him away. Like, hey, we don't got time for this. And Jesus rebuked them and said, no, let the little children come to me. Jesus only ministered for three years. Right? Actively. That's not very long. 
That's a very short career in anything, let alone savior of the world. So you got to be efficient, right? That's how I would think about it. I've only got three years and I've got to make a bunch of disciples and preach the gospel and really reach this, this whole nation. So I need to go after the most important people. I need to make sure I get a good printing press or, you know, I, I've got to... I got to maximize my time here. I can't be around people that are a bad influence or that are, you know, a bad investment. They're not going to help me out a lot. So certainly children. How, how can he have time for kids? What value does answering the nonsense, long-winded question, questions that kids have for Jesus? Okay, Alvin's just now got to the place where he is asking these unending why questions. And it just starts to feel like we're going in a circle on many of these, right? Until I take an off-ramp or just say, okay, we're, we're done with this. Okay, Jesus, well, you'd think Jesus doesn't have time to answer kids' questions of why. He's got more important stuff to do, and yet Jesus says, no, let, let him come. I'd love to spend my time hanging out with children who offer nothing to Jesus and really what do they have to give and yet Jesus sees them and he loves them Jesus saw the weak he saw the defenseless he saw the needy and those are the people he came to serve and those are the people that he gave his time to it's no wonder that those are the people who flocked to him because they knew that he loved them and he cared about them this is in contrast to maybe even the way some churches or religious leaders act today. Uh, I've seen some churches where you got the pa really big churches, not quite like here, right? So the pastor, he might be in the back sometimes to meet everybody, but he's got his entourage nearby. And while, well, they're there to make sure, you know, keep up on the line, make sure nobody takes up too much of his time because he's really important. Especially got to make sure nobody really poor or haggard or really needy is, you know, bothering him because, you know, there's more important people that he could be meeting. So, they, oh, here, let's help you. Let's walk you out of the line, get you somewhere else. You can talk to somebody who has time for you because, you know, the pastor doesn't. I've heard of some churches that, you know, they even look out for celebrities or big important people come so they can make sure they get to come and sit down at the front and then can get whisked away to the VIP place to meet with the pastor and the staff. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus sought out the people that we would overlook or the people we would be tempted to avoid or cross over or look at our phone or pretend that there was anything going on other than spend time with them, please. Yet that's who Jesus sought after. Jesus uplifted the weak and defenseless. And our, our last point is just a reminder of the gospel. The gospel is for the weak. The gospel is for the weak. There are many in this world who are, are weak and defenseless. Some of you in this room may feel like you ha and maybe have been abused and forgotten, but God has not forgotten you. So often, the prophecies and the prophets about the coming of Jesus, they talked about His coming for the weak and His coming for the poor, to set the captives free. Jesus didn't come for the powerful and the strong, but He came for the needy. He said, I didn't come for those who are well, I came for the sick. When Jesus announced the start of his ministry in Luke 4, he read from Isaiah 61. Passage we're in a study around Christmas. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And recovering the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to preach the gospel to the weak and the defenseless. This is who it's for. That doesn't mean the rich and the strong can't receive it or that Jesus doesn't love them or didn't die for them. But what it does mean is often those are the people who don't recognize how much they need Jesus. They think, well, I'm good. They don't understand how weak and defenseless 
they are. And the gospel really isn't, it's not just for the physically weak, it's for the spiritually weak, which is all of us. The reality is that all of us are weak and defenseless against sin. No matter how hard we try, none of us can escape it. We say things like, well, no one's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Because we recognize none of us are strong enough to resist the effects or the pull or the lure of sin. We all daily do things that we know are wrong. And sometimes we do things that we know are evil and wicked. But we can't help it and we can't save ourselves. And it's more than being weak. Scripture tells us that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We cannot escape sin. But there was someone who can. Only Jesus can. When he came down to earth, he resisted where we couldn't. He never sinned. And he died in our place. Where sin leads to death, the wages of sin are death, and Jesus paid our wages. He died the death that we deserve. And on the cross, he bore the weight of our sin. And he, on the cross, he crucified our sin. And at the tomb, he broke the power of sin and death, and he offers to us salvation, and we can be made clean and washed clean by his blood. Through the new life that is given to us from God, purchased by Jesus Christ and delivered from the Holy Spirit, we can be delivered from the clutches of sin and death. The gospel is for the weak. It's for those who don't have it all together. It's for those who know that they are sinners. It is for the needy and the sick and for those who know that they desperately need Jesus. It's who the gospel is for. And if that's you this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Come crawling to his feet. Throw yourself at his grace. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to pretend that you have it all together. You don't got to pretend that you're the most righteous person ever. You can come and admit your weakness. You can come and admit your sinfulness. You can confess your sin and find grace. And salvation is here for all anyone who wants it. It's free. Our arms aren't strong enough to grab it, but Jesus grabbed it for us. The reason we gather here every Sunday isn't because we all know how awesome and righteous and amazing we are, but it's because we know deep down how much we all need Jesus and how sinful we are and how broken we are and how without Him we are dead and lost in our sins forever. And we gather because we've been set free by the free gift of what Jesus has done. So if you don't know Jesus... If you want to learn more about Jesus, I invite you to grab me, come talk to me, ask any of the elders. We would love to lead you to Christ or to talk more about Him. But for those of you who are believers, I want you to still remember that you too are weak and that Jesus died for you. When you became a Christian, you didn't suddenly move on from needing the gospel. You didn't grow up and graduate beyond needing the Holy Spirit anymore or beyond needing Jesus. You need Jesus still today as much as you did on that first day, though not for salvation, for everything else. And as believers, it should also prick our conscience and know, well, if God cares for the weak and the defenseless, shouldn't we? If I really recognize how weak and defenseless I am and yet look at everything God did for me, that should change the way that we view the weak and defenseless around us. In summary, our big idea is that how we treat the weak and defenseless reveals our spiritual condition. See, the world abuses and Jesus uplifts for the gospels for the weak. And all of us are weak and all of us need Jesus and we gather because we know that we're weak and we need the God who cares for the weak. Like you and like me. I'm going to close this in prayer and we're going to transition 
to partaking of communion. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I, I praise you and I thank you that you are a God who cares for the weak and the defenseless and the dead like us without you. Lord, we praise you that you have saved us and you offer your salvation to us not because we are so great, not because we can earn it, not because we can do anything, but just because you are a God who is full of love and grace. And you love showing grace to sinners like us. Lord, thank you for your grace. And Lord, would you help us be a people who care for the weak and defenseless that we run into. Not because we're trying to earn anything or do anything or because we're trying to be so awesome and holy, but just because we recognize everything you have done for us. And we just want to pass it on. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing and celebrate our coming King once more. Hallelujah. I'm thankful that we are going to see the King. So hear this benediction from your King. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will working in us, which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Go in peace.